You remember uh, history class or something reading about Henry VIII? Henry VIII, I am, I am. That guy. Not a great guy to be married to, Henry VIII. The, uh, the old rhyme about Henry VIII. Henry VIII, to six wives he was wedded. One died, one survived, two divorced, two beheaded. Right? That's the guy, Henry VIII. Not a real... Not a real spirit-led guy, that Henry VIII. He could be angry and violent, uh, but he had, he had a pastor. There was a guy named Hugh Latimer. There was something of a pastor to Henry VIII. And one time, Hugh Latimer preached before Henry VIII, and Henry VIII was, like, felt conviction, and he didn't like it. And he got very angry, and the king told Hugh Latimer... He ordered him to return and preach again the next Sunday, and he ordered him to bring an apology, to apologize for the previous week's sermon when he showed up next week. So Hugh Latimer thought about that, and came the next Sunday, and he began his sermon like this. And I, I have the, the quote, this is recorded I'm going to modernize the language because it's just kind of hard to understand the way they spoke back then. So speaking of himself in the third person, Hugh Latimer said of Hugh Latimer this. Here's how he started the sermon that the Sunday he was supposed to apologize. He said, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you speak today? To the high and mighty monarch, his most excellent majesty, the king, who can take away your life if you offend him. That's who you're speaking before. Therefore, take heed and be careful that you don't say anything that may displease him. But then consider well, Hugh. Don't you know from where you come and upon whose message you have been sent? By the great and mighty God who is all present who sees all you do, who, see, who hears all you say, the great and mighty God who is able to cast souls into hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver his message faithfully. And then Hugh Latimer proceeded to deliver the exact same sermon he had preached the week before. Only by all accounts, with more energy and passion. Now that's boldness. Bold guy, that Hugh Latimer. He made a habit of being bold. He was actually burned at the stake some years later for um, refusing to accept the, the, uh, the, the authority of the Pope and some other things. Now that's, that's boldness. Boldness is nothing new in the Christian faith. It's not altogether common, but it ain't new. Boldness is when I say or do what is right, even though there are possible or probable consequences for doing so. That's being bold. And Jesus, as so often is the case, is our example of boldness today. In the, the passage we're going to read today from Matthew chapter 21, 
I think for my money, we see Jesus at his most bold right here today. He's going to, in front of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, tell them, God's done with you guys very clearly. Even though he knows they have the power over his life and death in all reality. He tells the parable of the unfaithful tenants, it's, or the parable of the vineyard. It's a different parable than the last time he told one about a vineyard. And it's uh, probably the most obvious parable Jesus ever told. Let's read it together. Matthew 21, <coughs> beginning in verse 33. I can get the clicker to click. There we go. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 33. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And then he rented out that vineyard to tenants, to vine growers. And he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Those tenant vine keepers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, the landowner did, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the vine growers, the tenants saw the son, they said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took the son and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asks, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. You ever read that? Verse 43. This is why I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because the people considered him to be a prophet. Okay, I, I mentioned this was a, an obvious parable. And there's some things that would have been obvious to the original audience that maybe aren't obvious to us. The first thing I want you to know about this parable is it's about Israel and it's about Israel in a way that's so obvious everyone there would have known Jesus was talking about Israel. First, a vine and grapes were, were a, was a common metaphor for Israel in the Old Testament, but it's more than that. You may have noticed as we read through there parts of the, uh, the New American Standard that is on the screen these parts that are in all caps, they're in all caps because that lets the reader know this is a quote from the Old Testament. I want to read you a, just a little bit. Let's read together from Isaiah chapter 5 and see if any of 
what I'm about to read you sounds at all familiar. It should. Because Jesus is telling the same parable that's already been told. And it's a parable that was about God being fed up with Israel. In Isaiah, we read this. Isaiah, the prophet, says this. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing a song now for my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. If we were going to modernize that, here's what that would say. Allow me to recite a poem about the one I love the best. So Isaiah is going to tell us a, a poem about God and God's vineyard, which is Israel. My well-beloved, that's God, he had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built the tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat or wine press in it, and then he expected it to produce good grapes. Any of that sound familiar? Sound at all like what we just read? It should, because it's quoted. Jesus is telling this parable again. What we read today is like Isaiah 5, 2.0. The upgrade, the sequel. But I want to see what he, let's see what he says here in Isaiah 5. God produced it to, or excuse me, expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? That section, God says this. There's not a harvest coming into Israel, and I want everybody to decide if that's my fault, that I didn't do enough to allow Israel to be fruitful, or, if it's, or there's no harvest because Israel hasn't been faithful enough to what they were supposed to be doing. Who's guilty? Me or the tenant farmers I leased my vineyard to. So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its walls, and it will be trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up, and I'm going to charge the clouds to not rain on it. And here's where we're told that this is definitely Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. All right. That's where obviously no question this is about Israel. So Jesus is standing in front of the leaders of Israel and he's going to tell them a parable they've already heard about God being fed up with the leaders of Israel. And then he's going to make it personally about them and about him. That's the backdrop of today's, um, today's passage. Jesus takes a familiar Old Testament parable and he runs it back. In verse 33, Jesus lets us know, I'm going to tell you a parable. What's a parable? It's a made-up story that teaches real truth. And then he tells this vineyard, this vineyard parable again. He quotes it from Isaiah. And here's what Jesus wants to let these guys know. God has done everything he needed to do for you to bring in a harvest for God. But you haven't been faithful. God prepared this vineyard and then he leased it out to tenant farmers. Now there's something we can understand around here, right? 
But when the harvest time was near, the 34, 5, and 6, God continued to send his slaves or his servants to collect his portion of the crop, and these slaves and servants get mistreated by the tenant farmers over and over again. Here's what Jesus is alluding to there. These are the prophets, the Old Testament prophets who were rejected by Israel. God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt, takes them out into the wilderness, gives them the Ten Commandments. Now that you're saved people, here's how you live with me. Here's the law. And then from that point till the end of the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy to Malachi, there's about a thousand years. And periodically over the course of that thousand years, God would send a prophet. He would see Israel being unfaithful and God would send a prophet to sort of kick Israel back in bounds. Straighten up. And over and over and over, they didn't listen to God's prophets. They rejected the message, sometimes violently, as is alluded to here. I'll give you three examples of what Jesus was talking about from the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 20. Now Peshur, son of Emer, heard Jeremiah prophesy these things. Peshur was the priest who was chief of security in the Lord's temple. He's a bigwig. And when he heard Jeremiah's prophecy, he had the prophet Jeremiah, what's that say? <coughs> Flogged. Beaten. So there's one prophet we know for sure was rejected by Israel's leadership and beaten. Second, excuse me, number two, 1 Kings 18. When Jezebel, her husband was the king, his name was Ahaz. Jezebel, what was she doing to the Lord's prophets according to 1 Kings 18.4? She was having prophets killed. So somebody took and, and hid the prophets or like the queen of Israel was going to kill them all. One more. In 2 Chronicles, God's spirit energized a guy named Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. Zechariah stood up before the people and said to them, this is what God says. Why are you violating the commands of the Lord? You will not be prosperous because you have rejected the Lord. He has rejected you. They plotted against him and by royal decree with the king's permission, they stoned the prophet Zechariah to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. There's three examples of what Jesus is talking about. God gave you, Israel, everything you needed to be fruitful. And when you got off course, he would send you a prophet and you would reject him. You wouldn't listen to him. Sometimes you beat him up. Sometimes you killed him. And now we get to the part of the parable that hasn't happened yet by Jesus' day. It's happening right in front of their eyes. This is the sequel part. This is the continuation part. Verses 37, 89, Jesus says this. Finally, this landowner sent his son to them, saying to himself, surely they're going to respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. If we kill the heir, we can keep his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. By the end of this week that Jesus tells this story, it's exactly what will have happened to him. He'll have been taken outside of Jerusalem and hung on a cross until he's dead. 
I want you to notice a couple things, how pointed and bold this is. Jesus tells these guys, this parable is about them. And he says to them, it's like he's pointing at them and says, and saying, you know who I am. You know I'm the son. In the parable, the tenants know the son when they see the son. Here's what Jesus is saying. You don't want me to be your Christ, your king, because you know we disagree and you will lose your positions. You just want to stay on top of the, of the pyramid of power in Jerusalem, even if you have to kill me to stay there. Just for a minute, let's put this, put this parable away. And I want to ask you to imagine a real life scenario. Scenario, yeah. Um, we understand tenant farming, right? Some of you rent ground, other people own, you farm the ground. It happens a lot. Are there times in real life where somebody who has farmed a piece of ground for a long time suddenly is in danger of losing the, the right to farm that piece of ground. Doesn't that happen? That can be painful, difficult times, can it? Some of you could probably tell stories. Now, if that was the case, so let's say in this scenario we're making up, and this might be like real for some of you, the landowner's getting old or something and decides it's time to settle my estate, and so he or she, before they go in the nursing home, they're going to go ahead and deed their land that you've been farming to a, a child, to an heir. But you know, as the, as the tenant farmer, man, if that heir takes over, I'm out. That happens, doesn't it? Now, how ridiculous would it be if this was your plan for keeping control, keeping the ability to farm that piece of ground. What if you thought, well, if the air gets the ground, I'll be out. So I know, bing, idea. I'll just kill the landowner's son, and then he'll let me keep farming the ground. Would that be, would that be ridiculous? Exactly. Now you understand the parable. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying to these guys. That's why he asks the question he asks in verse 40. Now when the owner of the vineyard shows up and these guys have killed his son, what would any landowner do to the people who killed his son? Would they let them stay in control of the vineyard? And someone says, no. He's going to utterly destroy those evil men. And he'll let somebody else Lease the vineyard. It's the only logical conclusion. There's no land, even though in this story, we just read a story about the most patient and gracious landowner in the history of landowners. He allowed his servants to be beaten up and killed. And he had never had enough. But when they, when they kill my son, it's time to change those who are responsible for the harvest. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to, or God is going to take away the responsibility from the harvest from, from you guys 
and give it to new people. Um, somebody else will be responsible for bringing in harvest. That's us. That's the church. It's what we're here for. The parable is over, but Jesus says the same thing a different way, just in case he hasn't been clear enough. I love when Jesus says this, verse 42. Have you never read in the scriptures? I love when he uh, asks the Pharisees and people like that, don't you guys read the Bible? Because I think that really made him mad. They absolutely read the Bible. Then Jesus does something really cool with Psalm 118. Haven't you ever read the part in Psalm 118, Jesus says, where we read this? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is from the Lord, and everybody thinks it's really awesome that the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. Haven't you guys ever read that? They had absolutely read that. This is, if they did this sort of thing uh, back then, this was on coffee cups and bumper stickers and hanging up in their walls of their, uh, uh, of their houses. Here's why. Originally, you know what the stone was in Psalm 118? You know what the stone that the builders rejected is? It's not Jesus in Psalm 118. It's Israel. Here's what Psalm 118 says. Every nation in the world looks down on you, Israel, and rejects you and thinks you're nothing, but God is going to make you the foundation of something awesome. That's right. Jews, Israelites loved that idea. That's why it says, everybody thought this was marvelous. Jesus, have you ever heard that part? You read that part about how everybody that rejects the stone is out, is out of whack and God's going to preserve the stone? They had. Jesus tells them God is doing that again. And from, but from this point on in the New Testament, Jesus is the cornerstone. And here's why. Did you know the soul purpose for the existence of the nation of Israel was Jesus, is Jesus. It's the whole reason Israel ever existed was to bring Jesus into existence. Quick history lesson. Garden of Eden, first sin. God promises to send a savior, a male descendant of Eve, who will crush the serpent and reverse the curse of sin and death and hell. The biggest question of the Old Testament is, who will that special descendant of Eve be? We call him the Savior. Then later, the Savior hasn't shown up. God shows up to a guy named Abram and says, Abram, I pick you from your descendants. I'm going to give you a family that's going to grow into a great nation. And from that nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. That's, that's the reason that family, Abraham's family, is Israel. The whole reason Israel existed is because God promised a Savior. So now here's what Jesus does, if you're following me here. Jesus says, you guys are rejecting the whole reason the nation exists. The, 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 God promised to keep this nation, Israel, so that he could deliver me. But when you guys reject me, it's like you are rejecting Israel. You're rejecting the real Israel, the real purpose. The nation doesn't exist so that you guys can have great jobs. The nation existed to deliver the Savior to the world. And when you reject me, it's like you become the one who rejects Israel. And that's why he says from now on, anybody who rejects me, the cornerstone... They trip over me. They'll, 
fall into judgment. If they ignore me, I will fall on them in judgment. That's verses 43 and 44. And then uh, verse 45 is uh, funnier to me than I think it's supposed to be. I think verse 45 is borderline hilarious, just the way it reads. I think what Matthew wants us to know is, Matthew wants us to know, these guys understood what Jesus was saying. Here's why I think it's funny, though. Jesus just told the most obvious parable in the history of parables. Okay? Super obvious. If he wasn't obvious enough, um, he read in, I think it was verse 43, I skipped over it, but he said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to someone else. Is that obvious? Then in verse 45, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees look around at each other and go, wait a minute. <laughs> I think this guy's talking about us. Like, yeah, yes he is. He really is. And listen to what they don't do. This is the sad part, verse 46. Here's what they should have done. They should have said, if there's any inkling of a chance that what Jesus is saying is true, we might want to make sure that we get in line with him. He does have the right lineage. He's done the right things. He's got the right power. He speaks with the right authority. He's here at the right time. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Maybe we should huddle up and decide whether or not there's any legitimacy to the things he says, but they're so blind with rage. They don't do that. They just put their heads together and figure out how can we get rid of this guy without people going nuts? And that's the passage. That's the parable. And I think we learned two things that I want to talk about for a few minutes here. The first thing we learn, we don't see the whole thing in, in, in this parable, but I just want to make sure that I leave you with this today. God's timeline for Israel and the kingdom, as soon as Jesus shows up, is this. The kingdom was offered, it was rejected, and it was delayed. God's timeline with Israel, as soon as Jesus shows up, offered, rejected, delayed. We have seen over the course of the book of Matthew Jesus offer the kingdom to Israel. If we turned back into Matthew chapter 10, here's what we would see. Jesus picks 12 guys to be his main disciples and immediately he gives them one job. Do you remember what that job was if you were here? He sent them out to preach two by two, but not just to anybody. Who was he supposed to preach to? Only Israel. He told them very specifically, don't go talk to any uh, filthy Gentile folks like, like you and me. Right? Only Israel. And the kingdom was offered to Israel first. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But as we've been seeing basically since then, nationally speaking, Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah. We don't want you to be our king. There's, on the way up the hill on Palm Sunday, for a minute there, it seemed like maybe there was a chance and not every Israelite, not every Jew rejected Jesus. 
But nationally speaking, they did. And so here's the, the next part, is that the kingdom has been delayed for Israel. It's not canceled. It's just delayed. We live right now in the delay. You know, the Old Testament, both Testaments, make very clear God is not done with Israel. God is going to force Israel to someday accept that Jesus is their king and their Messiah. God promises in a couple of places that Jerusalem will be ground zero on earth of Jesus' worship someday. Now, you want to, you want to talk about something that will take a miracle. I mean, I love it that, that Israel is back in its part of its homeland, at least, and that the capital, you know, is kind of being moved, and we're recognizing Jerusalem. But they're not worshiping Jesus from there. And that's the promise. That's the promise. And someday that's coming. But until then, here's what happens in the delay. Number two, God made, God made Israel to deliver the Messiah. And when they rejected him, God said, well, then I got to rent this place out to somebody who will be more about the harvest. And God set Israel aside for a time. And the nation of Israel really has no part in bringing in the harvest during this time we call the church age. For now, the church brings people to Jesus. Someday God will bring Israel to Jesus. But in this long delay, we are the new renters. We're the new tenants. And somebody answer this question. Does God change or does God tend to stay the same? He tends to stay the same, right? It's the same yesterday and today and forever. So if God had a group of people 2,000 years ago that he was fed up with because they weren't faithful in their job in the vineyard, Does God still get kind of fed up with people who are supposed to be about the harvest, but they're not faithful to their job as harvesters? He does. Some of you are maybe maybe visiting and, and aren't uh, you know, don't understand everything that I say and don't know what you have done with Jesus. You ever wonder why? Christians and the crazy Jesus people, like, you know, are they always want me to believe in Jesus and they're constantly telling me about. You ever wonder, like, why Christians are like that? This is why. This is why. Because the one we believe in, our Lord, our Savior, our King, said, I've given you a job to work in my vineyard, to, to bring in the harvest. Life is not about you. Life is about me. Life is about how many people we can gather to become a part of the kingdom. And, and the kingdom, the only people who will get into the kingdom are those who are built into what Jesus promised to build, which is the church. 
The Apostle Paul laid it out this way. He said what Jesus talked about today, that cornerstone thing. God made Jesus the cornerstone, the most important stone in this building. And God set that cornerstone into place. Then Paul says, then Jesus lined up his apostles to make up the foundation perfectly aligned with the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And everybody that's come to faith in Jesus Christ since then has to be in line with Jesus and the main building structure he started of the church 2,000 years ago. And anybody believes like different things, they might be very good people, but they're part of something different besides what Jesus promised to build. And that church are those who get into the kingdom. You know, I think it's really easy. It's really easy to fall into a line of thinking that's not much different than the religious leaders there. Do you know what their main problem was mentally? It wasn't that they didn't think Jesus was a real person. He was right there. Or that he wasn't powerful or a good teacher or any of that stuff. Here was their problem. They knew God promised amazing things about Israel. God promised to keep Israel and save Israel. And they thought, man, God must really think we're awesome. All I got to do is stay on top of Israel. God's promise to protect Israel. It's like they thought God existed to do good by them. I have a seminary professor who thought they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah like that. And they thought, we can kill that one. God promised he'll have to send another one. Because they didn't understand a resurrected, you know, a dead guy would become king, which is a hard thing to understand. Dead guys don't make great kings, generally. But they thought God existed to do good by them. Boy, is it easy to fall into that line of thinking? A whole bunch of what passes as Christianity today fits right in there. Have teachers who will show you some promises, some things God says in the Bible and make it seem like you just have to believe the right things and say the right prayers and act the right way and God will do good by you. God will make you healthy and, and maybe famous and happy and prosperous and all this stuff. God doesn't exist to do good by you. If you're a Christian, you exist to glorify God wherever He allows you to be. That's why God can allow difficult scary, painful things in our lives and still be fulfilling His promises. Because He didn't promise that this would be easy or feel good. He promised to build His church. He promised to save sinners. He promised eternal life to those who would come, who would come to believe in Him. But those are His promises. And wherever we are at with however we have been gifted, we can be faithful tenants, renters, bringing in the harvest. That's to be our job and our focus. We exist to be faithful, to bear fruit for Him. That's why we evangelize and encourage and strengthen and come alongside those who are hurting so we all keep moving toward the same thing, just helping people come to know the one they have to know. Their eternity depends on it. Would you pray with me? And we'll close. Heavenly Father, um, 
we are, as Christians, we're the ones you've sort of turned this thing over to, this vineyard of yours. That is a daunting thing to think about because we're unfaithful workers. We get sidetracked very easily. We feel like you haven't done your part when we look around at our circumstances. And you've reminded us today, you have done enough to fulfill your promises. You have done everything you needed to do for us to be faithful. We have what we need and what it takes to be faithful for you, to bring in a harvest for you. But God, we just see, we feel so inadequate and, and not up to the task. Thank you for reminding us earlier in the service today, you have made us adequate to serve you in the new covenant. God, help us know how to work faithfully and help us to just be dedicated to the task of glorifying you instead of asking and wondering why you don't give us this or let us have that. Help us to glorify you where you have allowed us to be until the time where we bring us to be where you are at. You perfect us and make us like you. We love you, Lord. Forgive us for being unfaithful tenants and strengthen our ability to serve you and glorify you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.